This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for the second episode of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and with me here today is my very first special guest. He is an iOS developer at Spotify. He is a great conference speaker that I've seen speak a couple of times. And he's the creator of many awesome Swift open source projects, including Interpolate, Phone Number Kit, and Objective Kit. And it's my friend, Roy Marmelstein. Welcome to the show, Roy. Hi, John. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. Hi. Good to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. You're the very first guest, so... Uh, That's very exciting. Yeah, let's see how this goes. New cool. territory for both of us, I guess. Yeah. So uh, when we go to conferences together, uh, a lot of people, they ask us if we were working at Spotify together. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, as some of you might know who listen to the show, that I was working at Spotify for about uh, three and a half years, but we never actually did work together. Yeah, there was zero overlap. Zero overlap. It was yeah. like me passing the torch to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, so you've been at Spotify for how long now? It must be about six months, right? It's about six months, yeah. Cool. And how are you liking it so far? I'm enjoying it a lot. It's, uh, it's definitely an interesting experience going to a bigger company. From I was working with a startup before. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's, uh, it's fascinating. I'm learning a lot. I'm having fun. and It's all about music, which I love as well. Yeah. It's, it's good. Yeah, that was one of the things that I loved working there as well. It was this nice intersection between music and technology, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's often... I'm still surprised by how many people who you wouldn't expect to have a musical background, have a musical background at Spotify. Right. There are so many, like, hidden artists. Mm, like lawyers and, uh, I don't know, the cleaners. Everyone, everyone has done something in music at some point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really impressive. I remember we had some of these, uh, like, Spotify Got Talents, mm-hmm. and it was always very surprising to see, uh, you know, the, the amount of talent that, that existed. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. So what are you up to these days at Spotify? What are you working on? So I'm part of a team. So I work on the iOS app. And I'm part of a team now that's doing a lot of prototyping and looking at um, trying to come up with future ideas for, for improvements. That's really cool. So uh, when you say prototyping, what, what does that involve? Like, uh, is that you know, building smaller apps, uh, like multiple apps, or is it working in the same app, like in the main app? Yeah, so the way we look at prototyping is uh, we're trying, we come up with ideas and we try to validate them as quickly and cheaply as possible. And whatever tool is the best tool for that is what we use. So sometimes we use, uh, we do like very simple prototypes, like with Framer. Uh, but yeah, oftentimes we want to build prototypes that you can actually live with and, and really experience the, the type of experience that we want to create. And for that, creating smaller apps is, is often the best solution. And, and that's what we do. Okay, cool. Yeah. So do you have some kind of like framework or base uh, tech platform that you can use to get these apps off the ground? Or is it new new project in Xcode? Or It's a new project in Xcode. <laughs> but we have, we have some foundations that we use. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Cool. So uh, right now, when you're building these prototypes, is that in Swift? You you also mentioned Framer, right? So that would be like JavaScript-based prototyping yes. tools. Yeah. But when you do write code in Xcode, is that Swift you're working with, or? Yeah, we use Swift. We're one of the the few teams that use Swift. 
um, yeah, and it's uh, super fun. Yeah, it sounds yeah. sounds great. Hmm. So, uh, what's your experience with Swift so far besides uh, Spotify? Like, I know that you've worked on these uh, open source projects that I mentioned in the in the intro, uh, and what else have you worked on? Like, what is what is your experience with Swift so far? So, I guess when Swift was launched, I was super excited about it, and I, I did an app in Swift one, uh, and then. Yeah, I just felt like that it wasn't really ready for production at that point. And uh, it kind of didn't do anything with Swift for a while. And then came back to it around two years ago. Um, I went to Ennis Spain and started to notice that, that everyone was talking about Swift and, and that uh, a lot of the issues that I had with it seemed to have been resolved in that, in that time. And uh, there was all this talk about the language being open source soon. And at that point, I kind of switched pretty much entirely to Swift. And, and that's most of what I've been programming in for the last two years. Um, so both with my previous company and these open source projects and side projects and uh, within Spotify as well. Cool. Yeah. And what is it about Swift that like really, really excites you? Like what new features of the language do you really like? Uh, there's so much. Uh, I think just last, last week or the week before, I got really excited about Codable in Swift 4, mm-hmm. um, which I think Sherlock's your... Uh, Unbox. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. At, at least partly, uh, yeah. which is fine. It, well, actually, it's great. It's uh, you know, I'm, my my plan is to make both Unbox and Wrap, which are my JSON tools, uh, just be really good citizens with Codable. So it will actually work together with Codable, and that just means less work for me. So that's great. That's fantastic. Yeah. So I I like how it's constantly evolving and it's constantly solving all these problems that uh, I had to deal with 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 all the versions of Swift. And yeah, it's it's a really exciting time to to be coding in this language. Yeah, I to- I totally agree. It's really exciting to see it evolve, and uh, like you say, like getting more practical and uh, like really focusing in on the solutions that solve the day to day problems that we face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. So before you were working with Swift, uh, what were you coding then? Like what got you what got you into programming in the first place? So it's a it's a very long story, <laughs> but um, yeah, I started programming when I was about nine or ten, mm-hmm. uh, and I was living in Israel at the time. And it was uh, my father's friend's son was the CTO of one of the first web companies uh, in Israel, and yeah, he got me this weird summer job, and I basically came to that company over two summers uh, at the ages of nine and ten, and they taught me. HTML and super early JavaScript and I think what became CSS so it was like dynamic HTML at the time. Oh right, and that was kind of the starting point, and I really I loved it, and I thought like this this is it's really nice to create things and use them, uh, and then yeah from that I got into Visual Basic and C and kind of kept that as a as a hobby for for a while. Nice C as a hobby, I like yes. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that then transitioned you into Objective-C and iOS, or? Uh, yes, kind of. <laughs> yeah, I, got, I, I was really excited when the iPhone came out, and I really wanted to, to build apps for it. And I remember when Steve Jobs had the JavaScript apps for, <laughs> as a solution. Uh-huh. I, I built some of those as well, uh, just, just in order to create apps for the iPhone. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't, it wasn't great. And then, yeah, just being really excited about the iOS SDK and, and using it. Cool. Yeah. 
Yeah, sounds kind of similar to how I got into iOS as well. Like I was also doing mainly web stuff before. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people did. And then you eventually like got your hands on this SDK and you got to learn Objective-C and now Swift. And yeah, it's, it's been a good road. Yeah, I think the web is a really good starting point for a lot of people. Yeah, it's very accessible. Like mm-hmm. you don't need to know anything about compilers or IDEs or whatever. Uh, you can just write a text file and put it, put it on, a, on a web server, right? Yeah. And off you go. And something will happen. <laughs> some, some, if hopefully, <laughs> and and different things might happen in different browsers, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is always exciting, right? Yeah, I think at that time it was just Internet Explorer was the only thing you cared about. Uh, right, you didn't have to worry about <laughs> browser compatibility. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. Hmm. Cool. So as you know, this show is all about uh, answering questions submitted by the listeners. And I'm really thankful for everybody who has sent in questions. Uh, It is really cool. And it's really going to be the backbone of the show. And if you have a question that you'd like to submit to the show, you can just go to swiftbysundell.com slash podcast where you can submit it. Or you can actually now also tweet it. We are embracing these modern technologies here on the show. (laughs) Uh, So you can tweet Swift by Sundell uh, with any question that you want to ask as well for future episodes. So what do you say, Roy? Should we get started with the questions? Let's do it. Let's do it. So the first one comes from Martin Moisard, and he is at Martin Moisard on Twitter. And he says, uh, this is a question for you, Roy. Uh, I know you have massively used RxSwift in production. How did the whole app scale with this technology? And do you think that there are some places where RxSwift is either overkill or should be avoided at all costs? So, yeah, I spoke about this in um, previous conferences, and I was quite lucky. I think a lot of people are excited about Rx Swift, and you spoke about it in the previous episode, I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so Rx Swift, if you don't know, it's this framework uh, for basically dealing, having this view of your app as uh, a lot of asynchronous, asynchronous processes to produce a stream, and then you manipulate the stream of events in order to create the the state of the app. Um, yeah. And yeah, so people are excited about it. And uh, with my previous company, I got to use it in, in a big scale in production. And it was kind of an interesting experience. So we had um, we had an app where there were a lot of these asynchronous processes and a lot of asynchronous events. And we had a lot of state-related bugs in the UI, and we thought that maybe Rx will, will help us. And yeah, what happened was... So we, we decided to go full-scale Rx. And one of the, so Rx is really good for manipulating uh, data streams, but also uh, it also put up, has a lot of tools for uh, doing the binding with the UI. Yeah, and the Rx Coco, right? Rx Coco and Rx Data Sources, which does uh, these kind of manipulations for table views and collection views. And using that, that's basically where we hit a lot of problems. So. Um, yeah, I think the places where I think Rx Swift is overkill is if you have an app that has a lot of asynchronous processes that and you have trouble dealing with them, then Rx is a good tool for that. But um, yeah, in our experience, we had we had very complex, very custom UI, and these kind of tools that were built into Rx were not sufficient, and they provided they caused a lot of issues. Okay, so does that mean that you would have to like expose your own observables, for example, on your custom UI view subclasses? Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> so we kind of copied the um, 
the, the way you did bindings with RxCoco and tried to create our own bindings for our custom UI, and it, it really didn't work very well. Okay. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, the uh, how it works in Rx is that you have observables that you can observe as a stream of values. And um, in RxCoco, for example, when you have the bindings that Roy mentioned, uh, you get these observables for free, for example, for UI text field or UI button. So you can observe when the user clicked something or entered text into a text field. Um, so what you're saying is that when you didn't use the standard controls and you had custom controls, things became a lot more complicated. Yes, and started breaking. And mm. yeah, and I think, I don't know, uh, if you've used KVO at scale, it's it's very much a similar experience. And, and we had a lot of debugging issues as well. And I think that like, you really should consider whether Rx is the, the right solution for, for the problem that you have. Right. And there's also the option of not using the bindings, right? And just using right. it for the actual async code and for managing state, really. So, mm -hmm. uh, having observables of things like your data loaders or push notifications, uh, maybe location services, etc. And then do you, still you're doing your UI kind of the quote-unquote old-fashioned way. Yeah, and that's where we actually ended up with after this whole process. That, that worked quite well for us. Right. I've also found that doing it that way uh, kind of increases the debuggability a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a lot of like a lot of the criticism uh, about Rx is usually the debuggability. And I think this happens when you kind of build these super complicated uh, chains that you know hook directly into the UI. There's kind of no place for you to put breakpoints and mm -hmm. and stop things. Yes. And, <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, I think, yeah, like you mentioned, uh, using Rx for what it's really good for, which is like combining values and combining observables uh, and reacting to them. Uh, that, that, that can really give you the biggest bang for the buck, I think. Yeah, I know, like, um, when we were both, we were both uh, app builders in Switzerland earlier this yeah. year, and we were talking to uh, Constantin, who, who created Rx Swift, and one of the things that he said that I liked was that it's not, Rx Swift is not an architecture, it's a tool, and I think that's something to keep in mind when you approach it, and, and it's a tool, it, it's very good at a few things, and, and those are the things that you should use it for. Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, sometimes when you're using these kind of bigger frameworks and uh, tools, it can be easy to kind of forget about design and architecture. Uh, so you sometimes forget, like, you still need to have really good separation of concerns. You still need to have uh, good abstractions uh, as to not make the whole app one big Rx chain, right? A massive stream. Massive stream. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And... Uh, you know, I I will put a link uh, in the show notes to your talk uh, from App Builders. I think that was a great talk. It was about silver bullets in Swift, and yeah, I think it just it's just worth iterating again that there are no silver bullets, right? Mm -hmm. And RX is not a silver bullet. You can use it for what it's really good for, and if it solves problems that you're facing in your app, then that's great, right? But try not to take it too far, and try to still have good separations of concerns and good abstractions as to not paint yourself into a corner. I think that's great advice. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So thank you very much, uh, Martin, for that question. Uh, let's move on to the next one, which comes from Jeffrey Fulton. And he is at Jeffrey Fultonka on Twitter. And he's asking about Swift's expressive features. So he, he's saying, what does it mean for a programming language like Swift to be expressive? 
Uh, what are examples of expressive versus non-expressive code? And why is being expressive an important characteristic to have? What do you think about that, Roy? So I think, as Jeffrey points out, I think there, there are loads of different opinions about this. Um, but yeah, when we speak about a language as expressive, what I think of is how, uh, how much code do you need to write in order to express an idea, and then uh, how easy it is to read and, and to understand. And I think Swift is actually very good at that. Yeah, I totally yeah. agree. Um, I think there are a couple of features in Swift that make it expressive. Uh, and for me, like the definition of like expressive code is that it's easy to read and easy to understand. Mm -hmm. It clearly conveys its intent. So when you read it, you, you kind of clearly understand what the author meant and why that code was written. Yeah. And I think, uh, examples of features that make Swift very expressive is for example, type inference, which reduces a lot of the clutter that comes to defining what type certain parameters or variables are, uh, as well as named parameters so that you can read uh, an API or, or a call to a function, you can read that as an English sentence, mm -hmm. right? You don't have to uh, dig into the code and look at the signature of the function in order to understand what types the, the parameters are. I guess that comes sort of as a legacy from Objective-C in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, that's one of the things that I love the most about Objective-C is that it was uh, like the name parameters and that kind of design philosophy that it should be easier to read the code, even though Objective-C made it hard to read in other ways, for example, with the <laughs> syntax. Yeah. Uh, so, and many of those things Swift has fixed or at least made better. Mm -hmm. And I guess sort of if we're talking about what problems it solves, I guess it's... Um just maintaining the code and, and onboarding people. And I think writing less code means that there's less that could break as well. Yeah, absolutely. Less code is always better. <laughs> what other benefits would you say there are to expressive languages? Yeah, I think it, it just reduces the overhead uh, of handling and working with the code. And I mean, most people uh, don't work alone on apps. We're working in some kind of team, or even if we're not working in a big team now, uh, we might in the future, like we, our product might start scaling up and we might need to, you know, get more people involved. And if you have this code base, which is non-expressive, like very hard to understand, uh, hard to read and hard to reason about, uh, that can be really difficult, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I mean, we've all been in the situation where we've looked at some code, we've been scratching our head and wondering, what does this do, right? <laughs> Yeah, and then you get blame. <laughs> exactly, try, you're trying try to see what what the hell happened. Yeah, you're trying to go down the rabbit hole and see mm. where why was this created. Yeah. And I, I really think like the word intent here is like the keyword, right? Like you're you're trying to figure out what why was this code written and what is it aiming to do. Mm -hmm. And Swift encourages good practices with that. It sure does, yeah. yeah. With uh, Again, with pr name parameters and with the API guidelines that were introduced with Swift 3 mm -hmm. uh, to really you know, focus on the call sites. Uh, try to make your API as easy to read as possible at the call sites. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Any other tips you have there for, uh, for expressive code? No, I think that's it. Yeah, I think that uh, kind of sums up my thoughts about it as well. Yeah, it's a good question. It's a great question. Uh, really great questions uh, overall, I must say. Like, uh, I'm really impressed by the questions that people are submitting. And 
you know, you can ask any question that you want. It doesn't have to be about specific Swift things. It can also be about, you know, programming in general and how Swift aims to solve some of those problems. So yeah, it's really a big thumbs up so far. So the next question comes from Nick Hayward, and he is N.E. Hayward on Twitter. And he's asking, what's the biggest challenge when working on a large iOS app? How is the project set up? And do you still use storyboards? So I think, like, actually, in my experience, the biggest challenge is actually dealing with legacy code uh, that kind of comes by having a large iOS app that's been around for a while. And I think generally with... Um, at tech companies, there's there's a lot of focus on delivering new features rather than dealing with the legacy, and and that's often, yeah, I think the biggest challenge is actually finding the time to fix all the code. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with a lot of developers, you usually end up with a lot of code. Yeah. And uh, yeah, as the product grows in scope and becomes more technically complex, then yeah, dealing with legacy code is a big challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking at the question, like I think Nick is kind of um, aiming to talk about sort of merge conflicts and merge issues and, and these kind of problems. But I, in my experience, the like if you architect your app correctly, you can avoid most of the pain there. And I think storyboards are particularly painful when, when it comes to these kind of things. And, uh, in most of the companies I worked with, we decided not to use them for that reason. Yeah, and that's, that's what I've been hearing as well. I haven't used storyboards that my, much myself either uh, because most teams that are of, are of a certain size, they tend not to use them, as you say. And the teams that do use them, they often say, well, storyboards are great if you do X, Y, and Z. <laughs> like there, it comes with a lot of ca- caveats. And again, it's kind of the thing where if it solves, if storyboard solves a concrete problem for you and doesn't generate a lot of headaches and extra work, then great, use them. Like it, it's it's a great tool, but if you do get a lot of merge conflicts because you know storyboards is one big file, it's hard to merge and it's easy to get conflicts when a lot of people are working on it. Uh, then maybe look into some other solution. Uh, it's uh, all of these tools that Apple provides. They're not for everybody, and they they work in different situations with different team structures, right? Yeah, but I think like people tend to get uh, very emotional when talking about storyboards for some reason. Yeah, we, we tend to get emotional about many yeah. things, right? Tabs versus spaces, <laughs> storyboards versus not. Yeah, yeah. but it's uh, yeah, I think it's in, in this in this situation, it's um, before you commit too much maybe to one solution like storyboards, which you know can be a big commitment then try it out, uh, you know, kind of what you mentioned in the beginning that you're working with now in Spotify, like working on these prototypes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that can be a great way, you know, if you get started on a new app, like see if this is is going to be a good tool. Yeah, and I think like storyboards are actually, for prototyping, they're, they're very useful. And especially if you don't know what you're building, it's, it's really nice to be, doing, to be able to do that with Interface Builder. Yeah. You mentioned on kind of the, for me, what is the core issue when uh, when having a big team, and that is coordinating the work. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot of developers, they're all working on the same app or maybe a suite of apps. And how do you make sure that all of these developers work on good things? Well, that can be uh, really hard. And it can also be hard to ensure that, you know, there's a consistent code style, consistent architecture. And that it's easy for new people to get in, so that it's not just like a big web of, of code. 
And I think a key thing here, uh, like you also mentioned earlier, is uh, modularity, like mm-hmm. splitting things up. And uh, in your experience, what are, what are some good ways, kind of just very high level of splitting code up into smaller pieces? So with Objective-C, it's quite easy to do. So you can uh, break a lot of the features in your app into static frameworks. And then um, they basically become sort of very independent modular units. And as long as you expose the same interface from these um, from these frameworks, then whatever happens inside is not a concern for, for other teams. And, and that allows basically avoiding a lot of these issues that, that come with bigger teams. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned something really key there also, which is uh, to have a, a clearly defined API that mm-hmm. other modules don't need to know what's going, going on inside your module. Yeah. And I think Pedro uh, Bamo from SoundCloud, he did a lot of talking about this last year, and he has, uh, he has, a, lot of, has a website, I think, evangelizing around these sort of framework-driven uh, development, I think is what he called it. And there are a lot of resources there that might be useful for someone who's, who wants to read more about this. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes to that website. Mm-hmm. It's a really great uh, way to get started, uh, kind of thinking in this way. and uh, Because it's, it's not something that everyone has dealt with, especially if you've been working alone or in a smaller team. Uh, you don't have those same needs to split things up. But it can still be a very good exercise to do that uh, in terms of testability or just separation of concerns. And also things like being able to work in playgrounds, uh, because in playgrounds, you need to import a framework in order to work on your code uh, or import the files directly. And if you split things up into like different frameworks, then it's easier to work on separate parts of the app in isolation. Mm-hmm. Cool. So um, what are some things that you found also in, um, because you've worked in, in both a startup and now at Spotify, uh, what are some like differences that you see in terms of the code management and and how how this big company is working on on this app? I don't know. I guess so. With my previous company, even though I started when we were very small, we kind of uh, when I left, we were about thirty engineers, and I think at that point you start seeing these scaling issues, and we ended up with very similar architecture as well. And I think as yeah, anytime you have more than maybe, I guess a rule of thumb, maybe five developers on a project, then then you'll start seeing these problems. Yeah, for yeah, sure. So then, there, not, there were not many differences, to be honest. Okay, cool. Yeah. So yeah, just to kind of sum it up there, I think um, having good separation of concerns and good modularity, whether that's in frameworks or just separating things in different ways and different folders or something like that to get a nicer overview and to enable different developers to work on separate part of the app without really overlapping. Mm. And I guess another important thing that we haven't discussed is uh, unit tests. Um, yeah. Unit tests are pretty, are in my mind, essential when you're working on with a large group of developers. And it just kind of ensures that you're not breaking someone, someone else's code when you commit something. If if it's if that code is well tested, yeah, it's kind of like a layer of protection for your code, which yeah. uh, might sound weird, but it's yeah, it protects against regressions basically, and to make sure that things are still working in a nice way, even though many different people are working on the same code base, which all these people they are never going to have the exact same context, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially with a large team. Especially with a large team, yeah. yeah. Yeah, all these issues, they kind of just get larger and larger the larger the team gets. So, yeah, that's kind of how it usually goes. Mm. 
So on a, on a similar note, uh, we have the next question here from Nick Korn, and he is at Nick Korn on Twitter. And he's asking about Git and how, when you have multiple versions of an app, how are you handling that with Git? For example, if you have version 1.0 in the App Store, version 1.1 in TestFlight awaiting feedback from testers, and version 1.2 being built, how are you structuring that with Git? And I know that at Spotify, uh, there's like a very rigid process uh, about this that enables the app to be shipped like yes, there and is. On, 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 a, on a regular cadence. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. So basically the idea is that all development should happen on master and that master in theory should always be at least buildable, uh, even though it, sometimes, it can sometimes break. And today we're on a weekly schedule. So at Spotify, we want to create a release candidate every week. And when we create a release candidate, we, we branch off. So we create a, a branch for the release candidate. And that version is tested and squads have to approve it. And if there are any really big bugs, they get fixed on this branch. And those fixes are automatically merged into master. And that branch, eventually, once all the testing has been done and all the big issues were fixed, that gets submitted to Apple. And we keep that branch alive. And then uh, we, keep, we have tags once, once the branch, once that uh, version is released. And so basically, to summarize, we have basically tags for all the versions. We have a branch for the version that's currently being submitted to Apple. And then all the development happens on master. Yeah, and I think that's that's very similar to what I've been using as well on the projects I've been working on now outside of Spotify. Um, the key thing here really is to keep master in an always shippable state. And this is where some of the things we talked about on the last episode about continuous integration and continuous delivery come in, where you don't treat your app like just a big pile of code, and then eventually you might say, "Oh, let's 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 make a release. Let's clean this thing up. Let's let's fix all the bugs, and let's ship it at some point." Uh, and instead, you are always ready to ship on master, right? That's the that's the aim. Yes. And when you make a pull request, you also always target your pull request towards master, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have these long-lived feature branches. No, feature branches should be very very short-lived. And it should be very granular, the, the updates that you have. Yeah. yeah. And I know that Spotify uses a lot of feature flags, et cetera, in order to uh, put code that is not really ready to ship right now, but it's still in master, but it's not activated. Uh, so how, how are you working with that in your current, current situation? So in my current situation, I don't, because we, we were doing all these prototypes on the side. But uh, previously, yeah, it was... Even though you have these feature flags as, as kind of a, a safety, you still want the code that you put on master to be of a certain level of quality and, and, and for you to kind of trust that it will be okay when it will eventually be turned on. So, and that, that's basically what you aim at. Yeah, because you never know when it's going to be turned on, right? You never know when this feature is going to be shipped. And I think the, the mindset there is super important to to not treat a new version that you're working on as unstable in the beginning and then getting more stable towards the release, but rather being on the same level of stability during the entire development process. And this is something that can get take a while to get used to, uh, but I think once you get there, together with continuous integration, good unit tests, uh, and continuous delivery, it's really nice 
because you get so much more confidence in your product. You know that it works at any given time. And if you get into a state where it doesn't work for some reason, you fix it immediately. Yeah, I often think it's a lot like cleaning your house. <laughs> and it's <laughs> as soon as like your house begins to get messy, if you clean it then, it's not a big deal. But when, when it's very messy, it's, it's a big problem. And as, as long as you do these things regularly and, and if you if every PR that you write has a sufficient unit tests, even though it's not ready for production, um, yeah, then, then it won't be as much of a big deal when eventually you want to turn it on. Yeah. yeah. What, one thing to keep in mind when you're using this workflow is to try to minimize the number of branches that you keep alive at the same time. Uh, because otherwise, I know uh, you mentioned earlier that at Spotify you have these uh, kind of scripts or jobs set up to always merge things back into master. Mm-hmm. And that is super nice. But yeah. in case you are working in a smaller company, maybe, or you don't have so much knowledge about these kind of, you know, automation and setup, then just try to keep as few branches as possible. And one way to do this is to, when you're shipping a new version, you you uh, fork that out into a new branch, you ship that version to test flight, for example. And then if you need to make a patch, you basically just go back to master because master should always be shippable anyway. You make the patch on master and then you just ship master again. So you just replace your release branch with a new copy of master. Uh, and that obviously doesn't work in a big company like Spotify that has a lot of velocity on mm-hmm. these branches. But it works really well for smaller companies like the one I work for, Hyper, uh, where we are only like a handful of developers. Cool. Cool. So I think we have time for one more question. And um, this question comes from Gene Bernard, and he is JJ Bernard on Twitter. And he's asking, do you have any tips for beginners on how to start contributing to open source? So my personal uh, experience, the first time I contributed to an open source project, it was for Async Display Kit, which is Facebook's, uh, one, of, one of Facebook's UI um, frameworks for having really fast rendering of UI. And basically, I was just using it a lot. And I, I realized that there was something that I thought was broken that I could fix. And yeah, I guess a good starting point is just fixing problems that you encounter when you use open source projects. Uh, but also, there are a lot of projects publish starter tasks, and, and those are very good places to start as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, looking for starter tasks is a great way to get started because these tend to be, um, f- like the, the issue itself tends to be formulated in a way that is easier for beginners to get into. Uh, it's of a much narrower scope, so it's not so intimidating. And you can just make a fix and submit it as a pull request just to get a first kind of experience uh, doing that. And then you can you know scale up from there and try to take on bigger things. And like you say, working on the the frameworks or the open source projects that you are using yourself, that is a great way to get started. What was your first uh, open source contribution, John? So my first one was actually a super simple tool that is still up on GitHub. It has zero stars. <laughs> so there, there, no one, no one really cares about it, which is completely fine. And this is also something I want to say is that uh, you don't need to have these grand ambitions about your open source work in the beginning. Uh, it's not about you know getting a thousand stars or whatever. It's just about getting started. And you can just create some tools for yourself or submit patches to some tools that you're using. And that's fine. That's great. It's a great way to get started in, in a smaller scale. 
So my first project was a, it's called, uh, I think it's called JS Update Checker or JS Update <laughs> Info. And it just checks whether your app has an update available on the App Store. That's so great. just yeah, it's it was just something I needed, and I've been using it in quite a number of apps. Mm -hmm. uh, so I just made it, and I thought, well, this is a kind of separate thing, so I'll just put it on GitHub, and that that that's fine. You know, it's again, it doesn't have to become like the next fast lane or the next Cocoa Pods or something like that. Uh, just getting started, and also I think doing these kind of things even for yourself, it really is a way to get a nice architecture because you naturally create these separated modular building blocks that you open source and those can't have any dependencies on any other stuff, uh, at least not any dependencies that are not clearly defined. So it's a nice way to just get into the habit of separating things. Yeah, and I think the experience of writing code for consumption outside of your team and outside of the people that you know is, is also like a very valuable experience and you write, you write code differently for that kind of use case. Yeah, you're focusing more on documentation and things we talked about earlier being like really expressive and mm -hmm. making it easier for other people to understand. It's it's a great exercise. And honestly, I think it kind of makes you a better developer. I agree. Great. So I guess to sum that up is just get started. Uh, it doesn't have to be a super ambitious thing that you do when it comes to open source. It can just be contributing to something you already use. For example, if you find a bug, instead of submitting an issue, try to fix it and submit a pull request and talk to the people who are working on this project. It's a great way to work with different kind of developers from different backgrounds and make new friends. So I would just encourage you to get started and try it out uh, and not, not have too big ambitions, at least not in the beginning. Great. So uh, that's all of our questions for this episode. Uh, again, if you want to submit questions for future episodes, that would be amazing. Uh, this show is all about answering your questions. So the more questions you submit, then the better the show will be. Uh, you can go to swiftbysundell.com slash podcast to submit your questions there, or just tweet at swiftbysundell uh, any question that you want to answer on the show. Uh, on the next episode, we're going to do a special edition about security and encryption. And I think that's going to be really interesting, especially for me, because I know a little bit about security and encryption, but I'm far from an expert. So I'm really excited to have not only one, but two really great guests for the next episode. Uh, the first person is Anastasia Vojtova, and she is a mobile tech lead at Cossack Labs. And chances are, if you have been at a conference in Europe during the last like couple of years, you have seen her speak about security. Uh, she does a lot of great talks about security, and she is really good with that stuff. So I'm really looking forward to having her on the show next episode. And I'm also going to have uh, Marcin Krzyzanowski. Uh, sorry about that, Marcin. Your last name is always hard to pronounce uh, for me. Uh, he is the creator of CryptoSwift, uh, which is one of the most used cryptography libraries for Swift. And he is also an iOS developer as PSPDF Kit. So I think these two guests will have a lot, uh, a lot of great answers to your questions about security, encryption, protecting user data, etc., which is super important, especially these days. So we've reached the end of this episode. So all that remains is for me to thank you a lot, Roy, for being on the show. Thank you, John. 
Yeah, it was a real pleasure to have you and hope you'll be back uh, on a future episode. Thanks. It was really fun. Great. People can also find you online on Twitter at Marmelroy. And thanks, everybody, for listening and for submitting questions. And I'll talk to you next episode. 